How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're taking a look at how to live a low-carbon lifestyle. Consumers have an expanding universe of choices for spending their money in a way that is smart for their wallet and the Earth's climate. But figuring out the carbon footprint of just one product, say a basket of blueberries or a new water heater, can involve sifting through complicated third-party data and slick or even deceptive corporate marketing. Green guides offer some help, but they sometimes point to contradictory conclusions. That leads some people to throw up their arms in frustration or make light green choices that may address their conscience but don't really address their carbon pollution. In the next hour, we'll dispel some myths and discuss the facts of how to make decisions that matter. Joining us with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club, we're pleased to have three experts. Diana Donlin is Cool Foods Campaign Director at the Center for Food Safety. David Friedman is Deputy Director of the Union of Concerned Scientists and author of Cooler Smarter, Cooler Smarter Practical Steps for Low-Carbon Living. And Betsy Rosenberg is radio host of On the Green Front. Please welcome them to Climate One today. Thank you all for coming. Uh, David, let's bust the myths right off the bat here. What are a couple of myths that people who think they're living a green, virtuous lifestyle, that they're going to live healthy and long and go to heaven, what are some of the, the uh, myths that you can dispel right away? Well, I think one of the most important myths for everyone, whether you feel like you're living a green lifestyle or not, um, is that the individual can't make a difference. And the reality is that Every single person in this audience, every single person listening to this show can make a big difference when it comes to climate change by making some relatively simple changes to your lifestyle. Now, some things don't make a lot of sense, for climate at least. You know, Some people suggest you avoid elevators or start worm farms in your basement. Those are good things to do. I mean, avoiding elevators will get you in shape. A worm farm will help cut down on the amount you compost. But those aren't the big things that are going to cut your carbon emissions and that's what we all really have to focus on. Don't sweat the small stuff. Focus on the big stuff, like the car you own, the energy you use around your home, and the food you eat. If you focus on those three big things, you can make a big difference when it comes to getting cooler and smarter. Betsy Rosenberg, what are you, some areas where you think that people are not necessarily making decisions that, that align with the facts, that are they're more based on other factors? Well, if I can go back just a step, because I don't call myself a green expert, but for 15 years I've been interviewing green experts, so I've picked up a little bit about the entire green spectrum. I know who the experts are. So my area of focus is really education, outreach, media, and I'll give you a couple of myths on that front, um, on the green front, in fact. Uh, one is that Americans are pretty educated about environmental problems. Uh, I've been doing green tea parties in homes and talking to moms in Marin County where I live, and the eco-IQ is appallingly low. It's not their fault. We don't really talk about these things anywhere. Um, two is that um, there's a lot of green media out there. Uh, there are stations on the Internet, as I'm, I write now, 
Uh, so people who write green books may get the feeling that they're, you know, being interviewed everywhere. But you should be on the Today Show. You should be on The View. You should be in all the mainstream outlets. And so it's still pretty siloed. There's still not one green talk show on in America on mainstream radio or television. Believe me, I know. Painfully, I know. <laughs> and what's wrong with that when we have reality TV shows clogging up the airwaves and a planetary crisis or two? Last but not least is, of course, that the myth that there's any debate on climate change. Of course, there isn't. And yet I still meet people, again, in fairly progressive Bay Area where um, they still think that there's a debate and they don't understand that 98.5% of all climate scientists say it's real, we're causing it, and it's an urgent crisis. So, Diana Donlin, what are some things food-wise that, that, that uh, sort of the headline, we'll drill into food a little bit more later, but what are some of the things food-wise that make the biggest difference? Sure. Well, the thing about food that's really interesting is that food is actually part of the problem and part of the solution. So that um, differentiates food from the transportation section, uh, sector or, and the energy sector. So the way we produce food is always going to cause some amount of greenhouse gases. That just, uh, but that's just a given. But there are better ways that we can do it, and then there are even better ways. So um, food is really a powerful lever that we haven't brought into the discussion yet. Okay. Well, let's stick on food for a minute. I mean, why not start with food? Everyone loves to talk about food. Uh, organic food, is that a real climate solution, or is that more of a personal health choice? Well, most people come to organic food from a health perspective. So if you survey mothers, and I happen to be the mother of two teen- teenage sons, um, I started buying organic food for my family because of pesticide residues. But the more I learned about it, I learned that organic food is also very good for the soil because it helps sequester the carbon or contain the carbon in the soil. Um, It doesn't use nitrogen fertilizers and pesticides, Mm -hmm. which are also made from um, fossil fuels. Um, When the soil's healthier, it's able to retain water as well. So there are multiple benefits to organic, and climate um, friendliness is one of many. Uh, David Friedman, is the climate benefits of organics, your book says it's kind of mixed. You kind of hedge on it, saying it's not really that significant. Well, and part of the challenge there is there's organic, there's organic, and there's organic, and yet most consumers don't know. Um, the, The labeling that's out there isn't clear enough to tell you what's, you know, super premium organic versus just barely gets over the threshold of what's defined as organic. So part of what our book tries to do is is it says, well, let's step back and let's try to make this as easy as possible. I mean, as you mentioned before, there's just an incredible amount of noise out there when it comes to advice for people. And we've got to cut through that. So can organic food help when it comes to the climate? Yes. It's not clear that it's, you know, a, a grand slam when it comes to climate. But what is clear when it comes to food is the biggest thing that you can do is cut back on meat. When it comes to food, um, Americans eat about 270 pounds of meat a year. That's about four times the global average. If a family of four cut their meat consumption in half, that would be roughly equivalent to doubling the fuel economy of one of your cars. So you should choose to eat organic. There's a lot of great reasons to eat organic. But if you want to have a big impact when it comes to climate change, try a meatless Monday. Cut meat out once a week or move meat from the center of your plate to a, to a side so that you can cut back on it by a, a quarter, a third, or ultimately a half, 
and you can have an incredibly large impact. One other group, uh, you cite beef, pork, and chicken as sort of the highest concentration, uh, the uh, sort of, I guess, the bad list for from a climate perspective. Uh, the Environmental Working Group cites lamb as number one. You don't even cite lamb. What, what, what you got against sheep? <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, red meat does tend to be the, the biggest uh, source of carbon emissions. In fact, uh, one pound of red meat is about equivalent to, the, it has the equivalent carbon footprint as about 18 pounds of pasta. But obviously red meat isn't the only um, area. I mean, I think part of the challenge with, with lamb is, um, you know, you, you feed them, you fatten them up, and they don't, uh, they're not around a long time. So I think that's part of why you, you have a higher footprint from them. But what most people eat, what a lot of what people eat, it's the red meat. And that's why we're focused on that is because that's a big portion of that 270 pounds. So, again, a lot of this isn't about um, focusing on each and every detail of, of which meat is a little bit better or a little bit worse. It's where can we make a big impact, and that's cutting back on your meat, especially red meat. Let's talk about local food. After Michael Pollan became really popular, all of a sudden local, you saw, to see a lot more uh, local signs in Whole Foods. They really started to promote local, local, local. Yet you say that the food miles are overstated. They're hyped. They're not as big as some people think. It's true. And it is often a shock to people that um, when it comes to food, focusing on how, how far it traveled from the farm to the table isn't that big of a deal. Now, there are 15% or so of... Well, it's actually less than that. So for the for typical food, um, only about 5% of the greenhouse gas emissions, the heat-trapping emissions associated with your food, come from bringing that food from the farm to your table. Over 90% of it comes from the fertilizer you use, irrigating the fields, the, the farm equipment. That's the real uh, big area where you have carbon emissions. So potentially... If you're buying from a farm that, that uses, say, 5% renewable electricity, the carbon footprint of that farm, even if it's uh, halfway or all the way around the country, could be lower um, than your local food supplier. But again, there's a really important asterisk here. That doesn't mean you shouldn't buy local food. It, if, if you want to know where your food comes from, if you want to support sustainable agriculture, if you want to support a more resilient food system, you should buy local food. My, my family does. We, we go about two miles away from the house, and we buy fresh eggs and, and, and fresh vegetables from a local farmer. But we're not doing it for climate reasons. We're doing it for our health reasons. We're doing it so that we know where our food is coming from. And that's, I think, an important distinction. Diane Donlin? We take a slightly more nuanced view on local food. Um, Helena Norberg-Hodge, who has been studying local food for 30 years, said, you know, in the north... Um, we have to, one of the reasons we have to have local food is because if we don't and we depend on exports from the global south, we are taking a population that is potentially self-sufficient in agriculture um, and is not part of the globalized system and putting them in that system. So for our comfort, so if we want to have raspberries when they're out of season and they're being flown in from far away, uh, that might mean that someone who was traditionally on the land has been displaced by agribusiness. So in that case, um, our approach is to advocate for local and seasonal. When you're eating in season, it's more likely that the food is local, it's more likely that it tastes better, and it's more likely that it's um, carbon-friendly, climate-friendly. 
David? Well, I just wanted to make one point to, to reinforce an important piece of that message and that we do point out in, in, in our book, which is that there are clear exceptions to the food miles rule, and that's if something is flown in. So fresh fish, potentially, is an example where food miles can actually be a very large part of the carbon footprint because they're flying it in, iced, uh, hundreds or thousands of miles. Fresh fruit, in some cases, uh, that can be uh, an issue. So if it's if it's highly perishable and it comes from a faraway place, then it makes more sense when you're in the grocery store to worry about it. But that's not most of our food. And that's why we get back to, you know, if we're going to make a big difference, we want to keep it as, as simple as possible for most people and focus on the big stuff and eating less meat. And also, and, and, and I hope you'd agree, Avoiding packaged meat. I mean, one of the packaged food. One of the reasons to get fresh food is because there's less packaging, so there's less carbon burden associated with the packaging with the food, and less processed food because again, there's a more of a carbon burden associated with processing a lot of that food. So there are there are still good climate reasons to get uh, fresh food. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we mentioned the the bad foods. The at least according to the Environmental Working Group, lentils, fruits, milk, and tofu are the ones that have sort of the lightest carbon. Footprint. Bessie Rosenberg, you want to get on, on the food in terms of uh, uh, what's, what people are doing? Well, uh, I first of all have a question. Does that mean we shouldn't buy blueberries from Chile ever? Because that's the one that I was trying to avoid. You know, when we're having fruit that is exactly the opposite of our season, even though it's tempting, it's usually pretty expensive. I don't know how those blueberries are, you know, it's a long way to go. They still look pretty fresh. So surprising to me how many fruits and vegetables, a lot of bananas come from Ecuador. In fact, I was at the store, I remember a few months ago, uh, trying to decide between organic bananas from Ecuador or local dole-grown right. non-organic, and I kept going back and forth, and I was right. laughing at myself, saying, been. "If I'm confused, who isn't?" And I said, "I'm, I'm doing the banana split. I even completely <laughs> split. I have no idea." <laughs> and that really, I think, sums up the the conflict for a lot of us. We're trying to do the right thing, and you know, like I said, if I don't know, who does? And so, is I'd like to know the rule about buying produce from other countries when they're not in season. I imagine it's to be avoided. Uh, but then I, I feel like, is it going to go to waste if everybody gets, you know, ecologically correct? Are they going to throw it all away, or will they just stop doing it? What is the impact of our choices? And it comes up against choices? the health things, right? You know, if you want your antioxidants, those blueberries year-round uh, look like a good thing. Mm-hmm. Diana Donlin? Or then we'll get well, actually, data. there's new research that shows that when you eat in season, you're less likely to build up resistance and to develop food allergies. So there's a reason. There's actually, you know, if you work in harmony with nature, it's going to be your ally. And we used to rotate foods in and out of our diet, and so we didn't build up the resistance to them. Now you see an explosion of food allergies, and the thinking is that that is perhaps because we eat the same thing all year round. So we've taken the anticipation out of blueberries, um, out of raspberries, practically out of pumpkins. Um, And to your answer, to your question about bananas, bananas are usually shipped by um, boat. So they're actually more climate-friendly um, than your blueberries, which were flown in. And same, same thing for apples as well, for example. Apples were, are much less likely to be flown in on an airplane. So, you know, you don't have to sit there feeling very guilty if you're, if you're buying an apple that's um, coming from New Zealand or something like that. But again, it, you know, if these are the kinds of things you're worried about, the first question you've got to ask yourself, have I cut back on the amount of meat I, I buy? Am I avoiding processed and packaged food? Am I avoiding wasting food? Because those are the biggest things. So, you know, if you've done all that, then you're clearly an overachiever 
and you should be diving into those, these other details. But if you haven't done all that, make sure you've checked off those three because those are going to give you the largest impact rather than, than worrying too much uh, about some of these issues. David Friedman is Deputy Director of the Union of Concerned Scientists and co-author of Cooler, Smarter, Practical Steps for Low-Carbon Living. Other guests today at Climate One are Betsy Rosenberg from On the Green Front and Diana Donlin from the Center for Food Safety. Uh, we mentioned Meatless Mondays earlier. I want to come back to that because that gets to the idea of like sacrifice, giving up something that's treasured. Meat used to be a real luxury, right? And uh, so is, it poss- is sacrifice necessary? Well, uh, part of what we try to do is, is encourage people to do uh, take the steps that fit with their lifestyle. Um, in many ways, eating less meat is quite the opposite uh, of a sacrifice because you'll live longer. You'll lower your risk of heart attacks. You, you'll lower your problems with cholesterol. So in many ways, I would argue it's quite the opposite of a sacrifice. It's something that can literally help save your life. But look, if, if cutting back on meat isn't your thing, that's not the only thing that you can do. There's a lot you can do in terms of the car you drive. There's a lot you can do in terms of, of your home. And, and I know we're going to get to all of those. But I think that's, that, that's another important myth that I think we need to bust, which is there's, it's a myth that there's only one way to be green. There's only one way to cut your carbon emissions. The, most, the, the, most, the, the, the way we're going to be the most effective at cutting our carbon emissions is if each and every one of us finds the solutions that work for us not necessarily the solutions that work for our neighbor. Different, different strokes for different folks. Anyone else? So let's, let's pick up on, on cars. Uh, you report that it's pretty complicated in terms of what car people ought to buy if they want to minimize their carbon impact. It depends on uh, the state where they live and, and the grid. So give us the, the profile of, of car purchasing decisions with a climate perspective. Sure. Um, it, it can be very simple if you're like most Americans and you're in the market to buy a gasoline car. Um, it, the typical car today gets around 20 miles per gallon. Um, that's about the same as it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So no matter how old your car is, that was about the average. But one of the exciting things right now is it's getting easier and easier to buy a 40 mile per gallon car. And so one of the things we're encouraging people to do to get cooler and smarter in their car choices is the next time you're in the market to buy a car, look for a 40 mile per gallon car. Switching from a 40 mile per ga- switching from a 20 mile per gallon car to a 40 mile per gallon car will cut your carbon emissions by about three and a half tons per per year. That's nearly cutting the average American's carbon emissions by almost 20 percent. And that's part of what we're encouraging everyone to do is this year. Cut your carbon emissions 20%. So if you're going to buy a car, look for that 40-mile-per-gallon car, and you can achieve that 20% reduction in one single purchase decision. Now, with electric cars, it's a lot more complicated, and and we can get into the details on that if you want as well, where it really does vary depending on where you live. And one of the good news stories is, of course, the increase in CAFE standards, so that actually I think I've heard people say that the, the, the cars sold this year actually have the highest uh, overall auto efficiency than, than they ever had because the automakers are working toward those those higher standards. There's more choices out there. Uh, but on hybrids, uh, sometimes a Prius is better or, or a gasoline hybrid, sometimes an electric car. So take us through that. Sure. Um, well, first to your first point, uh, what I like to say is 40 is the new 30 when it comes to fuel economy. <laughs> there was a time when car companies were bragging that they got vehicles that got over 30 miles per gallon, which really wasn't that big of a deal. 
But now they're actually competing to say who has more cars over 40 miles per gallon. So it's really exciting thanks to uh, new standards that are literally going to double fuel economy by 2025 that people will get more choices. And one of those choices, more and more, will become an electric car. And if you live in California, for example, an electric car is a grand slam. We just did some analysis that said that driving an electric car in California is the equivalent to getting on the order of 80 miles per gallon when it comes to your carbon footprint. So it's a clear home run because California has cleaner electricity. But in some parts of the country where they rely a lot on coal, driving an electric car is more like getting about 30, 35 miles per gallon, and you could beat that pretty easily with a lot of the good hybrids out there, Honda Civic Hybrid, Toyota Prius Hybrid, and in fact, even some of the uh, the SUV hybrids uh, can can get up there in the, about 40 miles per gallon and create a real competition to an electric car. So basically, people in the west and northwest and northeast, that's where the grid is cleaner. South uh, part of the United States, there's more coal. So there there are some regional differences, right, in terms of where where the electric car is is cleaner. Another point isn't it that the electric car will get cleaner over time with the new electricity standards? Yes, absolutely. And, and again, this is another place where uh, many states are clearly in, in the lead. California has something called a renewable electricity standard that requires that about a third of the electricity in California has to come from wind power, solar power, things like that. Michigan, for example, um, this fall is, is having a ballot initiative to raise their renewable electricity standard to about 25%. And over half the states in the, in, in the U.S. have these renewable electricity standards. So unlike a conventional gasoline car, which gets dirtier as it age, electric cars are going to get cleaner and cleaner as they age if we're all out there pushing to make sure that every state adopts strong renewable electricity standards. What about the cost? These cars cost a premium, uh, and your report talks about lifetime savings of dollars uh, uh, versus gasoline at 350 a gallon. So tell us what that would be in terms of uh, savings, because a lot of people say, well, that's nice, but it comes down to dollars and cents. Right, and um, dollars and cents is an important piece of the puzzle. I mean, if you're buying an electric car, you are investing in cutting carbon emissions. You're investing in cutting oil use. Um, but you're also investing in saving money. Uh, in one year, an electric car, again, depending on where you live, can save you anywhere from a few hundred dollars a year to more than a thousand dollars a year in terms of fuel costs. And when you combine that with some of the, the tax credits that are out there, um, a lot of the electric cars that are out there right now, over their lifetime, are less expensive to operate than a gasoline car. Uh, of course, electric cars, we need more research and development. Um, we need more investment in producing more electric cars so we can drive the cost down so that you won't even need uh, those tax breaks to, to make them cost effective. But look, you know, no one in the audience should think that electric cars are going to save the world today or even in five years. We're still early in that technology. The good news is because we're doubling the fuel economy of our gasoline cars, there's a little bit of time for that technology to move forward uh, so that it can get cheaper and that it can be more affordable for a lot more people. But if you want to cut oil use, if you want to cut greenhouse gas emissions, in about 45% of, uh, of the U.S., an electric car uh, is a great investment, and it's even better than uh, buying a hybrid. What kind of car do you drive? Um, I actually don't drive an electric car. Uh, I drive a car that gets about 40 miles per gallon. Um, I bought it 10 years ago. It's not even a hybrid. Um, and what I did even back then is I tried to put our lessons to work 
And I said, what do I really need in a car? And at that time, I was single. So I was able to get a compact car with a, a special lean burn engine that allows it to get about 40 miles per gallon. And the reason why I haven't bought a new car yet is because I've been waiting for the electrics because a hybrid doesn't necessarily save me a lot more fuel because I, I already did so well with that first purchase. Betsy, what kind of car do you drive? I've been driving a Prius for a decade. I interviewed Ted Danson right when they came out in 2002. And he, Early adopter. Yeah. He, he was so proud of his personal fuel efficiency standard, how he raised it, and he went on and on. And it was an NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council fundraiser, so my husband was standing next to me, and he went out and leased us a Prius for Valentine's Day. And that tells you what gets to my heart. Oops. <laughs> and what, what will your next car be? Well, that's a good question. So on the four, I'm on the fourth Prius because I keep leasing them to get the best technology. Getting about 55 miles per gallon, which is easy to remember because it's about my age. <laughs> it keeps improving. <laughs> the car mileage. <laughs> um, my next car, I hope, will be electric. Absolutely. A Chevy Volt. I'd love to be able to buy an American car. In fact, David remembers a decade ago, uh, along with some moms in Marin, we started Don't Be Fueled, Mothers for Clean and Safe Vehicles, Hybrids, Not Hummers, right after 9-11 when we saw these giant SUVs with Save Our Troops and God Bless America, we're saying we could well be going into Iraq because of our oil addiction, and there's a disconnect there. And we were demanding that Detroit make more fuel-efficient, family-friendly cars. Well, there's still not a hybrid minivan. There are hybrid SUVs, but they're hybrid lights. And what we were really saying is we want to help the big three automakers in our country build American fuel-efficient cars and hope to finally be able to do that with the Chevy Volt. Or would you consider the uh, Toyota Prius, which uh, some of them are actually made in the United States, and it's a lot cheaper. The Prius is, what, in the 20s, the Volts in the 40s. That's one of the tough things for people looking at. I'm, I'm not going to do a Prius again. Why? Because there's a lot of hills in Mill Valley where I live, and if you're going downhill, the, the Priuses have a very low front end, and I'm uh, so tired of scraping that front end. It's because the battery's heavy. So just a, a word to the Toyota people out there. Um, that's bothering me. Besides but I love the mileage. I mean, in Mill Valley, there's so many Priuses. The local officials are concerned about a new level of smugness in the air. <laughs> yes. They're everywhere. Right, right. Yeah, it's not, I don't feel very special anymore driving a Prius. Exactly. You've got to go to the, to the next level. Diana? Yeah. I drive a 99 um, Subaru Outback. It's not an Outback. Sorry. It's a Subaru Legacy, uh, but it's a stick ship, so it gets excellent mileage. Better mileage. Um, but we use our car and our family the same way we eat meat, which is very judiciously. And so we're actually mostly a biking, walking, public transit family, and the car is, like the meat, considered. Well, David. And, and I think that part of this brings up uh, a couple of really important points. One is, you know, it's not just about the fuel economy for your car. It's also about how you use it. And either if you're not in the market for a car today or if you already own a fuel-efficient car, there are other things that you can do. Telecommute once a week. Um, make sure your car is tuned up and your tires are inflated. These are steps that could save people literally hundreds of dollars a year on fuel and would cut your carbon emissions. So even if you're not in the market for a car, using, using gas wisely, as, as was a, a World War II theme, still makes a lot of sense. So you should think before you drive and think if you have any other options. That, that said, another really important myth is that if you care about the environment, you should drive your car, your refrigerator, whatever it is, into the ground. And there was a time when that was true. But, for example, with refrigerators, um, refrigerators today are up to 70% more efficient than a refrigerator from 10 years ago. And so if you've got one of those old refrigerators, it makes sense to junk it. 
only a small portion of the emissions associated with that refrigerator come from making it. Most come from using it. 2003 is the year, right? The cutoff year where the, right. the new standards 2003 came in. Is, That's is, the... is the clear cutoff year. Um, but one of the things we offer in our book actually is, is a link to a website where you can put in the model of your refrigerator and it will tell you how quickly it can pay for itself in energy savings. Because of the book, my wife and I went out and junked our old refrigerator and I'm saving about 20 bucks a month on my utility bill already. Literally, that whole refrigerator is going to be paid off in electricity savings in about four or five years. So I'm effectively getting a free refrigerator and I'm cutting carbon emissions dramatically. So don't necessarily drive that car, that refrigerator into the ground. If you can buy a more fuel efficient vehicle, you'll have a much better impact on, on, uh, on the climate. David Friedman is Deputy Director of the Union of Concerned Scientists and co-author of Cooler, Smarter, Practical Steps for Living a Low-Carbon low Living. Other guests today at Climate One are Diana Donlin from the Center for Food Safety and radio host Betsy Rosenberg. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's go into the home further. What are some other big things that people can do uh, moving from the garage inside to the house? What are some of the big things people can do to lower their carbon impact at home? That, that's a, a great question. And... Uh, you know, when you look at uh, the typical Americans' greenhouse gas emissions, the, the average American is responsible for about 21 tons of heat-trapping gases every single year. And the energy we use around our home for heating, for cooling, for appliances and electronics is responsible for about one-third of those emissions. So there's a lot that we can do around the home, uh, everything from replacing that old refrigerator to Buying a programmable thermostat. Uh, I'm just curious it, if people would raise their hands. Does anyone here in this room already own a programmable thermostat? That's pretty good. It's I'm afraid, but how many of them are actually programmed? That's the question. <laughs> okay, about, it's about a third of the people in the audience, and they're they're uh, they're pledging that they are actually programmed. Okay, which is great because these programmable thermostats can cut your heating and cooling loads by as much as 15 percent. So if you're the typical American who's spending around $1,100 a year on heating and cooling, you can save a lot of money by buying a $20, $40, $60 programmable thermostat. But as you know well, part of the challenge that we found in, in, in researching for the book is a lot of the people just plug them in and never actually program them to back off on the heater cooling when you're not there during the day or to back off when you're asleep at night. So please, if you own one, Right, right after you leave this talk, go home, make sure you program it to make sure you're getting the, the max savings you can because literally you're, you're throwing money out the window if you haven't uh, programmed that thermostat to back off on the heating and cooling at day and at night. In terms of backing up, shouldn't people also sort of plug the holes rather than sort of, uh, you know, you can still be heating the outdoors, as my mother used to say, when we run out the front door, the heat on. Um, so before that, what are some steps that should be taken? Well, speaking of throwing money out the window, most Americans are literally, uh, are figuratively throwing money out the window because of air leaks in our homes. About 15 to 25 percent of the heat that our, our furnaces are providing in the winter and the cooling that our AC is providing in the summer comes from leaks, leaks in the fireplace, leaks around windows, leaks around doors. And, you know, you could wet your finger and hold it up around your house to try to figure out where those leaks are. Or you could call your local utility or your state energy agency. They'll do an energy audit. They'll find those leaks for you. They'll teach you how to fix them. And they could help you save 
$250 to $300 a year just by stopping all those air leaks around your house. It's a really simple thing that you can do. Maybe you'll add some more insulation in your attic as, uh, as a result of the audit as well. We caulked our garage, and it was amazing how the, the temperature difference, you just walk into the garage now, it's a big you know, heat or cold cavity, and now that heat exchange, uh, I haven't tracked how much money we're saving, but I can definitely feel the, the heat difference. Um, we talked about refrigerators. Uh, flash water heaters. Water heaters are often so one of the, the culprits at, at home, and people say, well, should, you know, we have this big tank of water that we heat when we don't really need it most of the time, yet it's hot all the time. Are flash water heaters better? Flash well, water heaters, we should describe what they are. Sure. Well, flash water heaters are, are effectively instant water heaters. Um, the concept behind them is they uh, will heat up. They don't have, sit with a reservoir of hot water. They just heat up the water as you need it. And these can dramatically cut back on the amount of energy that's needed to heat your hot water. So, uh, you know, if you have an old water heater, definitely replace it. If you want, you can replace it just with a well-insulated um, tanked uh, uh, water heater, or you can go with these tankless instant water heaters that can cut your, the electricity used for heating water um, by more than a factor of two. So they can be a great investment, but make sure it's installed right. Uh, I, some people can sometimes have problems if it's not installed close enough um, to the faucets, and then you lose a lot of heat as the water is getting from that instant heater uh, to your faucet. So make sure it's installed right. Get a, get a good, high-quality uh, installer and plumber to make sure that it's done right. Not to mention all the water that's wasted just, just runs away, right, while you're heating. And that, that's what burns me, so it doesn't burn me. But, it, you know, it's like just the, the waste of... And there's a lot of energy embedded in the delivery of, of that water. Diana, or, or would you like to get on the water? Well, I was going to add that what you okay. said, just said about the energy in water. Uh, California, as you know... Yeah. uses a tremendous amount of energy to move water around in the state. So one thing we can all do at home is conserve water. We certainly did that um, during the 70s, during that prolonged drought. But you can get a rain barrel. You can use um, that to water your garden. Uh, they have these rain barrels now in, in Singapore and in Australia that people just as a matter of course save their rainwater. We could do that in our arid climate. Um, you can run your dishwasher only when it's full. Same with your washing machine. Really just save up, and instead of running a half load, wait till it's full. There's no reason. But aren't there health concerns with having standing water sitting around? Well, sure there are, absolutely. So, I mean, so you, oh, it's easy oh, to say water buckets, but then there's some health well, no, concerns there, that used to be illegal. There's special rain barrels that... that um, account for that. You just have to do a little research online. The, the, the San Francisco oh, yeah. Public Utilities Commission actually is trying to get people to, to take them because mm-hmm. they've because they've realized that the the, the processing of, of rainwater that goes through the drains, that, that costs money. So that any money, di- water diverted from the municipal system uh, saves the city money. Betsy Rosenberg? Water waste. That's what got me into this crazy um, environmental illness I have. I hate waste. I started Trash Talk 15 years ago because my husband was shaving, brushing his teeth, and the water was going down the drain. And he was doing his best thinking while the water was flowing, and it drove me nuts. So (laughs) we now um, have bottles of water, like a vase near the sink. So when it's heating up, just put it in there and then use that to water uh, the plants. And then also in the kitchen... While in the in the shower, first of all, have a watering can. So if you're in a home where it takes one to two minutes to heat up the water, it's catching it. Use it to water indoor outdoor plants. And then I do the same thing when I'm clearing off the table. If there's water in the glasses, I pour it into the orchids. I don't. Not a drop of water gets wasted in my house. I get apoplectic. So, thank you for bringing up my favorite subject. <laughs> well, and if you're really worried about both water and the climate, 
Um, one of the reasons why California uh, uses so much energy associated with our water use is actually a lot of the water is used to cool power plants. And so if you back off on the amount of electricity you use at home by upgrading that refrigerator, by insulating your home, um, by even just doing simple things like uh, getting a power strip, plugging your TV into and, and your laser printer into that power strip, you can save hundreds of dollars a year on your electricity bill, and you can cut back on water use because those power plants won't be having to run as hard, uh, wasting a lot of water as they cool them off as they're generating heat to ultimately generate the electricity to power our lives. One of the things that people talk about here is feedback loops. That is, giving information that at the time of use that, that reinforces that behavior. The Prius dashboard is famous because it tells you how much energy you're using right now. The problem with the utility bill is you get it some weeks or months later, and it's not correlated in time with that power strip or uh, the, the water heater, et cetera. So let, let's talk a little bit about the giving information that correlates with that behavior that, to be reinforced. Sure. Well, I, I mean, in general... One of the most powerful things we all we also did find about saving energy around the home is to pay attention to that utility bill. It, it may come only once a month, but if you keep track of it, and then if you apply some of the tips uh, in our book, you will see that uh, fall, just like I did with my refrigerator. But there are quicker ways of doing it. A lot of libraries actually have these watt meters, these little devices that you can bring into your home, effectively uh, clamps around a, a wire, so it, it doesn't uh, mess with the system, or it just plugs into a socket, and then you plug in to that, and it will measure the amount of electricity that you use in various devices around the house. And one of the things you will surprisingly find is if you own a laser printer and you're not turning it off at night, you're potentially wasting $100 a year because laser printers don't have a good um, sleep mode, and so they're wasting a lot of energy. You'll also find the same thing for your big... Uh, entertainment system and, and video game consoles. These are. Uh, you mean you know, that 90-inch TV uses energy? <laughs> well, it turns out it does. It's one of those. It's one of those vampires when it comes to electricity, even when it's off. And that's why simple things like uh, power strips can be so powerful. Um, you know, there are other ways that people have done in this. For example, I believe it was in in Phoenix where people signed up for a program where they paid for their electricity more like the way we pay for gasoline. They would effectively charge up their account uh, that would allow them to use a certain amount of, uh, to pay for a certain amount of electricity, and then they would watch that account balance fall, and then their, uh, their meter would effectively give them an alert when they're running low on their balance. And what the utility found was with the combination of better information and that pricing signal to let them know they're basically running out before they have to recharge, People were able to cut back on their electricity use 10 to 15 percent just simply by getting more effective information about how, how much electricity they're using and how quickly it's draining their bank account. So it, it does make sense to, to find different ways of, of getting more information. Betsy Rosenberg? Since we're talking about green myths, I've had some questions I've wondered about. So got the expert here, so let's continue to grill you. Um, it, true or false that if you're leaving a room for more than two minutes, you should turn out the light? And same with the computer. Should you put it in sleep mode or turn it all the way off at night or if you're leaving for, you know, half the day, a few hours? What is the cutoff? Mm -hmm. And then also, um, I get asked a lot, well, I heard that hybrid car batteries are really bad for the environment, both in terms of disposal and of, you know, life cycle, and also that there's some danger with EMFs and that it's going to be even more so with the electric car batteries because they're larger, um, more robust. 
if you could address those sure. I'll, I'll urban do my, myths. I'll, I'll do my best, and I may have to come back to you to remind me of, <laughs> of all those excellent questions. So the first one, turning off the lights. Um, you know, my wife and I used to often be on each other over who left the lights on, and, and it would end, lead to endless arguments. <laughs> you and do, huh? I've got a great way to solve that. <laughs> I had that today. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Buy compact, compact fluorescent light bulbs. Get rid of all the, the regular incandescent light bulbs in your house, and just that single step, you can avoid arguing about who left the lights on. Why? Because switching from incandescence to a compact fluorescent is equivalent to literally sitting in the dark for three out of every four days without actually having to sit in the dark. LEDs, which are a little more expensive, but a lot of people say have even better, higher quality light than incandescence, installing those is equivalent to sitting in the dark for six out of every seven days. So what I would say is, I don't care what the rule of thumb is. Buy a more efficient light bulb so you don't have to have that debate anymore. We put LEDs at our house, and we also put them in our will because they cost so much, and they're going to be 40 years. And so when I move out of the house, I'm unscrewing those suckers and taking them with us, that's for sure. They're a great um, investment. Yeah. Um, hybrid batteries is a good one because yes. that does come up. People say, oh, hybrid car, the mining of the metals, disposal of the batteries. Right. Well, first let's talk the climate angle on, on hybrid cars. Um, just as with the refrigerator, only a small portion of the climate impact comes from making and disposing of your car. For, for the typical gasoline car, it's only about 10% of the climate impact comes from making and disposing it. 90% comes from using that vehicle. Uh, with a hybrid car, it's very similar. So when it comes to climate change, if you're buying a good hybrid, which can boost fuel economy by 30 40 50% or nearly doubling fuel economy, then you're clearly, after the first, say, 10,000 to 15,000 miles you drive, you're saving carbon emissions. So that, that's clear hands down. Now, the more complicated question are these other environmental impacts associated with mining and, and um, you know, resource gathering. And the key here really is that um, what we've got to make sure that happens is that those batteries are recycled. Cars are already one of the most recycled um, uh, products out there. Why? Because steel's valuable. A lot of the materials in those cars are valuable, so car companies would rather um, reclaim that materials, or, and, and other companies would rather reclaim that materials than buy it from overseas. They can potentially save money on that. It's the same thing with the batteries. The batteries um, contain very valuable substances, and so the first thing people are going to do is, and companies like Honda and Toyota and others and Nissan are already doing this, they're trying to make sure those batteries are reused. Um, so maybe your, your battery will have a second life as um, backup power supply or, or high-quality power supply for a Google server farm. And then once its life is truly finally over after that, recycle it, and it could go into a new car. So the key to making sure that those broader environmental impacts don't get out of hand is making sure that we recycle those battery packs. And the makers of the hybrid cars are, in fact, doing that, mostly Toyota and Honda, as far as you know. They are refurbishing or at the end. Have we had the end of life cycle for Prius yet? Well, and, and that's the challenge. They, they all have um, programs in place to do this. But one of the interesting things is uh, hybrid batteries are turning out to be lasting the lifetime of cars. And so we, we haven't been facing this big glut of hybrids that have to be recycled because, in this case, the car companies did a pretty good job of designing those vehicles to last. Um, as the technology gets more popular, this will become a bigger issue. 
But the good thing is, in countries like Japan and Europe, they're already ahead of the United States when it comes to what they call you know, cradle-to-grave management. And so there's a lot of momentum here, and the economics are on the side of the environment in this case. David Friedman is Deputy Director of the Union of Concerned Scientists and co-author of Cooler, Smarter, Practical Steps for Low-Carbon Living. Other guests today at Climate One are Diana Donlan, Cool Foods Campaign Director at the Center for Food Safety, and Betsy Rosenberg, host of On the Green Front radio program. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to invite your participation. We're going to put a microphone up here. And as Jane Ann said, if you're on this side, please go around through that door rather than crossing this camera. And we'll get the, uh, this part going. And the line will start back with, uh, with Jane Ann right there. And um, we have a lot. So whoever is uh, first can come on up. Thanks for a nice overview. Uh, getting back to cars for a moment, um, you didn't mention the, uh, the diesels that are being produced in Europe, particularly the German ones, which are very clean running. Uh, and my uh, little brag is about what I think is the ultimate at the moment. I put some solar panels on my roof, which deserves a little bit of time. Uh, I did it. You can do it. There are various ways to purchase or lease or finance them, um, and they're quite reliable, I assure you. And that, in combination with my uh, Volt, uh, lets me drive virtually guilt-free. So German and, diesels? And, and, and if you do buy a Volt, when you get to the bottom of the hill, it scrapes too. <laughs> can't live in Mill Valley anymore. <laughs> well, that, that was a perfect example of an overachiever, I would say. Um, in, in terms of the first question, diesels can diesels have gotten a lot cleaner. The, the diesels that um, a lot of the car companies are selling are, are not the old, dirty diesels that we were used to where they're belching smoke. Um, so diesels can be a great, uh, a great choice. They are a lot cleaner. Um, two things to remember about diesels. One is diesel is a thicker fuel. Um, and that has a lot of good things. It means you can tend to go farther on a gallon of diesel, but it also means that a gallon of diesel has about 10 to 15% higher carbon emissions than a gallon of gasoline. So diesel cars are still good for cutting carbon emissions, but when comparing them to gasoline vehicles, you've got to put about a 10 to 15% discount on their fuel economy. But the easiest way to do it is to go to places like fueleconomy.gov, um, which is a federal government website, that gives you the carbon footprint of both gasoline and diesel cars, and you can make that comparison yourself. But diesel cars can definitely be a good good piece of the puzzle. And, you know, solar power, it's hard to argue with solar power as anything but a great option. We need a lot more of it. Our utilities need to be tapping a lot more into it. And if you can install those solar panels at home and charge your Volt or your Leaf, like I said, you are... You're one of those clear overachievers, and we need more like you. <laughs> so for our next question. I have a, a solar uh, comment and then a question with it. About a year ago, I put in solar panels. It cost uh, 14 grand or so. I didn't touch any of it myself, so it was all paid for. Um, just got my first 12 months bill. I paid $11.83 for electricity last year. Uh, that was an administrative charge, by the way. Um, <laughs> Before that, it was costing about 250 a month, so say, let's say three grand a year. 
So I'm going to break even on this thing in about between year five and year six, something like that. And then it's going to spin out $3,000 a year. Um, they seems like they plateaued about 80% efficiency so for a long, long time. So my question is, what I don't understand is why people aren't running to this. So there's a, there's a way to, to cut electricity and all that's good. By the way, I do have LEDs, 10 bucks a pop, I'll tell you where. Uh, oh, later, Greg. That's a lot <laughs> less than I paid. But on, on the whole electricity front, you can do that and should do that, but why not roll your own? and let the, the sun make it. I just don't understand why people aren't, aren't going that way. Roll your own. Okay. All right, we got it. Started at the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, solar power is, is a great alternative for folks. It may not work for everyone. And, again, I think that, that's one of the important lessons uh, of Cooler Smarter. In fact, one of the things you can do is you can go to coolersmarter.org, answer a few questions. You know, if you're an overachiever, it may not work as well for you, but... You know, the typical uh, American, if you go to CoolerSmarter.org, you can answer some questions, and we'll give you 20 tips over 20 days on how you can get started in cutting your carbon emissions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you. Hi, Diana. Hi, Betsy. Uh, I run a nonprofit called Cool the Earth, and uh, the essence of our program is about behavior change, uh, getting families to reduce their carbon footprint. And the way we do this is by inspiring kids. Uh, kids can get their parents to buy things like Lucky Charms, um, and they can also get them to change their energy behaviors. And I was interested in having the panel comment on the inertia factor, because I often feel that we're really not fighting CO2. We're fighting inertia and behavior change. It's a psychological issue, a cultural issue. Betsy Rosenberg? Oh, if you let me start, I won't leave enough time. I, this, is, this is what I lose sleep about. Um, I don't really understand, you know, what it is about we Americans, I guess it is cultural that we're, you know, it's about entitlement and abundance and the American way and, you know, you can go from nothing to everything. But we've taken that too far, clearly, because we're not taking our crises seriously. And I can give you all kinds of examples, but just look, again, at the media lacking um, not only des designated programs for these very real and, and complex and urgent issues, uh, but also just government leadership. Uh, you know, schools are teaching it, and that's a great program you just heard about. Um, but where are the adults learning? And, you know, we baby boomers are going to live to 120, right? So we make choices every day. So I'm so glad your book is out, and I will promote it at the Green Tea Parties. But this is a puzzle to me, a psychological, sociological puzzle. Um, why aren't we more alarmed? And, uh, you know, we don't like bad news, and we don't like, you know, longer, you know, answers and more complex problems, but we have to get over that really quickly. And I don't understand, especially parents, having that sort of um, lethargy and apathy and putting those blinders on when we parents have more invested in the future than anyone. So there's really a disconnect there. Um, and Dan Donlin? Well, I love Carlene's program. Um, my children did it in school, and you take these little coupons, and you bring them home, and you go over, and it says something like, you know, hang your clothes up to dry, check. Um, you know, Turn your water off when you're brushing your teeth. Check. Ride your bike to school. Check. So you can enlist kids in all of these things that are climate-friendly, and they love it. They're very enthusiastic about it. And I wanted to make one comment going back to cars and transportation. Um, I think a lot of parents feel that they have to drive their children places, that they're entitled, and that that's quality time with your children. It's not quality time. It's very stressful, traffic, all those things. <laughs> What's quality time is riding your bike with your kids, walking with your kids, or giving your 
children wings so that they can learn how to figure out how they're going to take that bus, how they're going to take that ferry. They have a cell phone. They can call you when they get there. And, you know, you, you let them out, reel them in. And programs like Carleen's really help teach kids, and I think that helps with the inertia factor. Yeah, I just don't think we should put it all on our kids to solve no, this. No, no. <laughs> no but, it's but for them. we can work together. Well, and I mean, that sounds like a fantastic program, and, and I hope I've got a three-year-old, and I, I'm sure he will be uh, pushing me to, to change my lifestyle. I guess one of the things I would ask of everyone here, our kids should be climate leaders. Everyone here should commit to becoming a climate leader. Everyone this year should commit to cutting your own carbon emissions 20%, and then you can have stories that you can tell people. You can tell them about the money you saved. You can tell them about no longer having to argue over who, the le- who left the lights on. Everyone here can become a low-carbon leader by committing to cut their carbon emissions and spreading the word. We have to beat that inertia by ch- making changes in our own lives, but then talking to the people we know, talking to our policy leaders, showing them, hey, look, you may not be leading on this, but I'm making these changes, and you should be following my lead. Welcome. Let's have our next audience question. Hi. Hi, I've heard that a number of the car companies and the utility companies, too, are considering this problem of if you're in California, maybe you have cleaner grid electricity, whereas if you're in another state like Midwest, you might have dirtier electricity, and that they're combating this by associating RECs with the car purchase. Renewable energy credits. Renewable, yeah. And uh, the uh, the other way that they're doing it is, uh, for example, in Austin, in many of the places when you charge your electric car, you can actually char- charge with renewable energy. And so uh, I was surprised that I haven't really – we've had a couple of questions about renewable energy, but I haven't heard you speak yet about the importance of renewable energy as a whole. That, that's my question. Well, look, part of what we're asking with our book is for everyone to commit to a 20% reduction in carbon emissions this year. But if we're ultimately going to deal with climate change, which – really is the single largest long-term environmental threat facing the nation and the world today. Existential, not just environmental. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. In, in many ways, we are going to have to cut our carbon emissions 80%. So everyone who can start with 20% should start with that 20%. But everyone who can invest in renewable power, whether it's buying renewable electricity credits, whether it's signing up uh, with your utilities program where maybe you pay a few extra cents and they'll invest that money in renewable electricity, or, or maybe it's talking to your, your uh, local representatives, your governors, and pushing for renewable electricity standards in your state. I mean, California is going, uh, already going for 33% renewables by 2025, and we're already close to meeting that. I mean, California can go way beyond 33. So, again, part of being climate leaders is pushing for things like renewable energy so that everyone can drive a lot cleaner if they're buying an electric car. We have about 10 minutes left, and a lot of questions. I'm not sure we'll get through them all, but let's try. Yes, welcome, sir. PG&E has been installing smart meters on electrical uh, systems here in the Bay Area. Have they been designed and installed in a manner that gives the users uh, feedback enough to help reduce the greenhouse emissions? Um, I don't have a good answer for that. I'm, I, I, know, I know they've been installing smart meters. I know there's been some you know, various controversy and, and issues around them. Um, so I don't know if either of you have Betsy or Diana on, on, on smart meters. I'm going to pass. There's okay. such controversy that whatever I say, someone's going to get mad at me. So I think in theory they're a good idea. I don't know that they've been well implemented. 
Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Good evening. Um, so every day I face this banana split, as you called it, challenge. <laughs> I eat every single day. And I make decisions every day about changing a light bulb, turning switches on, and I make fast decisions. Now, I'm pretty diligent. I have an 01 Prius that I had to order on the Internet when they were first shipping them in. So, And I'm a diligent consumer, and I still don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, you know, what do we do at the point of purchase? There's Eco Scorecard, Eco Label Index, Good Guide, Green Wizard, GreenerChoices.com, uh, Level Certified. There's certifications and lists, and I mean, Good Guide is about the best of them that I've found. But what are we doing about point of purchase, or is anyone doing anything that actually will help people make decisions? We're we're kind of the good guys here, I think. You know, these are these are we're pretty evolved. That's why we're here. But the country is really making decisions, and I can't make these decisions every day in a smart way. I wouldn't know which bananas to buy. I'd probably buy the cheaper ones. Well, it does feel like you need a Ph.D. to go to the supermarket these days, but you really don't. If you think about a couple of things, try and eat fresh food, avoid the processed food because it's going to be healthier for you and healthier for the planet, right? Try and eat locally and in season. Watch your meat intake. Watch your packaging and watch your waste. Um, we waste up to 40% of the food that's grown in this country, and you'd think that after we go to the trouble of growing it, packaging it, processing it, shipping it, refrigerating it, we would at least eat it. So there's something <laughs> right think. there. And um, the reason we're focusing on food is because not only do we have the CO2, but we also have methane, which is 23 times more powerful than CO2, and nitrous oxide, which gets into the whole industrial agriculture model, which is 294 times more potent than CO2. So um, when you are eating three times a day, you can keep those principles in mind, and you will be eating cooler food. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. So far, the conversation has focused on cars, home energy, and food. A few years ago, I calculated that my share of an economy class seat round trip from here to the East Coast and back. I, I don't remember. So I, I think it was something like twice what I use in my home in a year. My home energy use is modest. Why has that not come? I'm actually feeling a little angry that <laughs> that whole issue hasn't been raised. I, I feel like if I can't be happy here in San Francisco, I'm probably not going to be happy in Barbados or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Big omission, point taken. The airlines, if you go to the California Academy of Sciences, they have that little exhibit, what your inputs in your car, you know, the airplane just, right? The, though your car emissions annually are about, if for the average American, are 10 times your airline emissions. So the reason why we focus on but cars... But that's an average, and most Americans right. don't fly that much, but if you're right. sort of... Right. If, if you fly a lot, it's a place to focus. Stay out of first class. You know, try to try to get airlines that where everyone shares the same amount of seating, and you'll you'll have a lower carbon footprint. But What about so, offsets? Uh, carbon offsets can make a lot of sense, but, you know, what we always say to folks first is the first thing you should always do is cut your own carbon emissions before you pay someone else to cut theirs. Yes, sir. Next question. We know there are a lot of incentives for installing solar panels on private homes, and we keep hearing that the prices are regularly coming down. But I live in a 110-unit condo building. How many years away are we from the optimum price point for solar panels on our roof? I don't know the exact answer to that, but what I do know is building integrated photovoltaics, so um, integrating uh, solar power onto 
condominiums, onto businesses, onto the roofs, and, and even in some cases the sides of commercial buildings can be a great way to, uh, to spread solar power. I know in California there's already some interest in pushing uh, farther with distributed solar power so that a lot more people can get access to solar power right where they live, which has the added benefit is you don't need a lot of transmission lines to get the, uh, the solar power to you if it's coming from next door. That's one of Governor Brown's big initiatives is distributed solar, uh, particularly on state lands. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. Um, so my question is, what's better, to buy an old car and rebuild the engine and redo all that, or to go out and buy a brand-new Prius, let's say, or some other eco-friendly car? It comes down to the fuel economy. If you're rebuilding a car that gets 35, 40 miles per gallon, um, maybe it's roughly a toss-up. But in most cases, because the average car only gets about 20 miles per gallon, that new Prius is going to be hands-down better when it comes to carbon emissions, unless, you're, unless you've really found a gem to rebuild. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have the next question. Special thanks to the panel for offering actionable advice here. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on what uh, renters can do to um, reduce their energy footprint. For example, the refrigerator example was poignant. And i got to tell you, my landlord would not be interested in me saving money on my energy bill when he has to foot it for the refrigerator. Classic, what they call the agency problem, right? David right. No, that, that's a classic problem. And, I mean, even homeowners have this problem where the builders will uh, avoid insulation or avoid other things that may lower your costs but increase their costs or at least increase the, the first cost of it. I mean, first, what I would say for people who, who do live in apartments, you know, focus on making sure um, you, you can potentially have control over your light bulbs. You can have control over whether you have power strips to shut off that TV, to shut off that laser printer. Um, in certain cases, depending on where you live, there are some kits that you can use to increase the insulation on your windows uh, that, that won't cause any damage to the window but can actually save you money. And, look, there's only, if there's only so much uh, you can control in your home, focus on how you get around. Focus on your food. There are other categories besides your home um, that you can also get to a 20% carbon reduction this year. I'm going to end with a, a provocative question, which leads to a, another event that we're going to have later in this year. Uh, there's a, an economist at the Environmental Defense Fund, Colonel Wagner, Ph.D., who's written a book that says that individual action doesn't matter. Policy is what matters. Uh, there's something called the action bias, that I, where they argue that actually individual action distracts from collective action, and all these feel-good things may make us feel better, but they're not solving the problem. Betsy Rosenberg, you're nodding your head. Completely agree. I mean, it, it has to start with us, so this is important, and that is equally important, if not more so. And my take on this is that what we need is an educated population. We need an ignited America to be demanding greener policy products, politicians, presidents, or it's not going to happen. And guess what? It's not happening. I mean, the last research showed that um, Americans' uh, opinion of steps needed to combat climate change is going down. At the same, the same week that... We have, we're just, you know, opening Pandora's box here. I am with this whole um, deep-pocketed fossil fuel industry putting up billboards and saying, you know, if you believe in climate change, you're equivalent to Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and other actors, you know, murderers, sorry, murderers. There's a really deep-pocketed, dark, you know, force at work to turn all this over and then some, and we have to be aware of that. So I think until we connect the green dots for Americans and get 
you know, outside the choir, God bless you, the sacred choir, but it's still the same people when I go to conferences, when I hear speak, speeches. Um, the same people show up, you know, at transition town events in Marin over and over and over again. We're a tiny fraction of America, you know, and, and we need to get out of the silo and take it, spread it everywhere now. And, and only then will we have a chance of addressing this, you know, mother of all eco-challenges. Well, David Freeman, then Diane Donlin. I would say, look, individual actions matter, period. End of story. I, I completely disagree that they don't matter. And it's for two reasons. One, look, if every American cut their carbon emissions 20% this year, that would be the equivalent of shutting down one-third of the United States' dirty coal-fired power plants. So individual action matters. But remember, policy change is individual action, too. Because politicians aren't going to change unless we're telling them to change. Politicians aren't going to change unless, for example, nearly 300,000 people speak up and ask for doubling of fuel economy. Well, they did it. And guess what? We're going to get it. Unless millions of people in California speak out and say, we need to protect our cap-and-trade program, protect pricing of carbon against um, interests, oil interests from the out of the state who are assaulting it. Well, guess what? Californians did that. So individual action is also all about making changes in your own life, but also about sharing those changes and sharing that passion to create much bigger changes when it comes to policy. We, we cannot and should not choose between them. We need both, and we need a lot of it. And, and I hope everyone here will commit to being a climate leader. Diane Dolan? Well, we see so much energy and excitement in the food movement. That's where you see the rise in farmers' markets, you see the celebrity chefs, you see the small transition towns um, being revitalized around food issues. We see record numbers of young people interested in farming. So there's a lot of energy in this movement that we can harness to the climate movement and bring some of that fresh energy, bring different voices, bring women's voices to the climate world. They haven't been very present. It's very male-dominated. It's very science-dominated. We need young people who have a stake in the future engaged, and they're engaged in food. So that's why we are choosing to focus on food, even though it's only 14% of our personal climate emissions. Um, the potential for policy change is enormous. Diane Donlin is Clue Foods Campaign Director at the Center for Food Safety. Our other guests today at Climate One have been David Friedman, Deputy Director of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Betsy Rosenberg, host of On the Green Front Radio. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming, and thanks for listening to Climate One today.